So we're coming to the last two paragraphs of chapter 9. And just to remind us, when we're looking at chapter 9 of the Confession of Free Will, paragraph 1 was giving us just a kind of foundational, definitional understanding of what free will is. Paragraph 2 talked about our will in the state of innocency in the garden, that it was free from the taint of sin, but was mutable and changeable. And because of that, it did change. And when Adam and Eve fell into sin, we see in paragraph 3 that we have wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. We looked at Romans 5 last week. One key verse, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because, because all sinned. And with this, we're in a desperate situation. Totally desperate situation. Unable to do anything of any good on our own behalf to make ourselves more pleasing to God, more attractive to God, anything that would put us in a better standing before God, we can't do that on our own. And so we require God to move on our behalf if anything is to be done. And this is why we read in John, John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or as we were reminded last week, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We're talking about this morning, looking at paragraphs 4 and 5, what happens after we are born again? What happens to our will in this state? So, chapter 9, paragraph 4 of the Confession says, When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace... He frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by His grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. And it's interesting that the paragraph begins with, well, we weren't, we're not able to convert ourselves but when God converts a sinner. And so this is the necessary starting place that we begin with a supernatural work of God in us to make us objects of God's pleasure, objects of God's grace. And so we can just ask, what does the Bible say about God working in our conversion or God performing our conversion? Yeah, yeah. Ephesians 2, you're looking at the first half of it. We can start. But God, verse 4, is probably the best place to start. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, loved while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Any other texts that come to mind? Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You get a very similar language in Titus 3, which we looked at last week. And Titus 3, starting in uh, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a couple texts I do want to point out to you. 2 Corinthians 5 is a text that's often thought of in this context, especially verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And of course, this is entirely a work of God, as the full paragraph makes clear. But we're a new creation. We're something new that we were not before. And I want to go to Ezekiel 36 for a wonderful Old Testament text. Let's start in verse 22. Yeah, we'll start there. Ezekiel 36, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, this is a wonderful text that we find in the Old Testament that describes exactly what we're talking about in this paragraph. We are new creatures fundamentally oriented differently. And there's a few things we can talk about in that. To use the language we've been using in the paragraphs, again, we're thinking of our will in the pre-fall state. We were morally inclined to good, but in a mutable state. 
That's the pre-fall state. In the fallen state, man is morally inclined to evil and unable to do that which pleases God, including change. We cannot change ourselves. So in the regenerate state, when we're given this heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, what can we say about it? We can say regenerate man is morally inclined to good, but afflicted with his or her sinful flesh. The regenerate state is permanent, though it does mature some in this life and completely in the next. The sinful flesh is, not, is only temporary and will be shed for perfect flesh in the final state. Now, most of that you're probably fine with, but if there's anything you might raise your eyebrows at, it's that man is morally inclined to good in the regenerate state. And I, I was a little surprised by this in my reading as well, but we're going to spend some time in Romans 6 and 7, but I just want to look at Romans 7 real quick, because I think this is really clear in how Paul describes himself. Romans 7, starting verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He's saying, in the central control center of who I am as a person, I delight in the law of God. We take that to mean, as a regenerate person, I do have an inclination to do what is good and righteous. Then, uh, verse 23, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And I take the law of my mind to mean the law of God that he loves and delights in in his inner being. There's conflict, but in his inner being, central to who Paul is now, because he's a regenerate person, he delights in the law of God. And so we'll come back to Romans 7 later, but I just wanted to show you at least one place in Scripture where we would look to say, regenerate man has a taste of what was in the garden. A moral inclination to that which is good. Now, it's hard to experientially recognize this because we so often do present our members to sin. But before we get there, with just that description of our will, I want to go back to the language of the confession in paragraph 4. When God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, there's this change in us, and we're different than we used to be, He frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. So, there are a lot of texts in Scripture that talk about freedom in Christ. What are some of those texts that we would look to to describe what it means to be free in Christ? I didn't have that one written down. 2 Corinthians 3. Mm -hmm. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Yeah. And so we're affirming that in the Spirit, in the regenerate state, there is freedom. And freedom, we would say specifically from bondage of sin. There are texts that do bring that freedom in, in that specific context? Are there any other texts that come to mind? 
Galatians 4, yeah. And I'm tempted to read a lot here. Um, Yes, Galatians 4 and 5. And it's interesting if you, which I did, if you go on, is it Bible Gateway? And then you do like the control, fine, control F and type in free. There, you can tell freedom is the theme of this section in Galatians 4 through Galatians 5. The word free shows up a lot. Um, let's see. Yeah, we'll read it. All right, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present. Now Hagar is... Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Then Galatians 5, 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery." And here, there's freedom particularly in relationship to the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant made at Sinai. And we can, if we're going to speak, as the way I think we should speak, in relationship to it as a covenant of works, the idea that this law is do this and live, we're freed from that burden because we can't fulfill it. We can't perform it. We want to look at John 8, in the words of Christ, in verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do not, or you do what you have heard, and you do what you have heard from your Father. So, looking at this, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and Christ says, um, whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Freedom in this context is specifically pointing to bondage to sin. And there's a freedom from that bondage that we have in Christ. And just to describe this a bit more, we can turn to Romans 6, because we're going to camp in Romans 6 for a little bit. But what can we say about this bondage to sin? 
outside of Christ, like we said in the confession last week, we were unable to will anything to spiritual good. And I love the way Albert Moeller preached on this. There's the, he talks about the rattling of the chains. And anytime they beckon and say, present your eyes to look upon this sinful thing. Outside of Christ, you say, yes, Master, I will obey. When sin beckons and say, present your hands to touch this sinful forbidden object. Outside of Christ, we say, yes, Master, I live to serve. I live to obey your will. But in Christ, those chains are broken. And so we no longer have to answer yes when sin beckons. We're no longer bound in that way. And so, yeah, looking at Romans 6, and remember, we were just in Romans 5 last week because in Romans 5, we saw Adam and Christ compared, and just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, so life enters the world through one man, Christ. And just to understand why Paul asked this question, um, verse 20 of chapter 5, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where there's a lot of sin, Christ came in with even more grace to bring healing that was needed to wicked rebels as, such as us. And so Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the first thing that Paul's doing is talking about baptism into Christ. As Christ died, so we die with him. As Christ rises from the dead... There is a resurrection that we experience even in this life, being born again. And this experience gives us the foundation for understanding our relationship to sin. We have a different relationship to sin now than we did prior to that death. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him, union with Christ, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. In verse 9, really wonderful. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. And the idea being, if I died with Christ, He's never dying again. I'm never dying again in that sense. Death has lost all dominion over Christ. And there's a sense then in which sin has lost its dominion over me as the regenerate believer. And Christ's death and resurrection is the grounds and foundation for this.
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Application. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And perhaps the really challenging thing here is to say what this text means is that it is improper for the Christian to say, I cannot stop doing whatever sin. That I am incapable of stopping whatever sin this might be. And this is hard for us. This is hard for us for many reasons. But the text says, in Christ, we're no longer bound. Sin is no longer our master. We're no longer required to answer yes. We're no longer incapable of saying anything but yes. And so when the Christian might say, I cannot stop consuming pornography. I cannot stop it. It's not a proper perspective for the Christian to say this. When the Christian says, I cannot stop consuming alcohol to drunkenness. I just can't stop it. It's not right. When the Christian says, I cannot stop succumbing to fits of anger and rage. I'm just totally in slavery to this passion. Or when the Christian says, I cannot stop my worrying and anxiety even. I'm in total bondage to it. This isn't, proper, this isn't a proper way for us to speak. Now, we're not denying that there are biological realities that affect our ability to resist sin and practice righteousness. Paul talks about our mortal body here. And the mortal body, in my reading, I think we can safely say is physical, is the physical body. Now, every time he says flesh, he is not talking about just the physical body. But the mortal body, yes. Um, there are physical realities that hinder us in our, in our freedom, we would say. But we want to be careful to, without qualification, affirm what the Bible says, that I am not in bondage to sin anymore as a believer. So, one question might naturally arise. Does this mean that we should live a life of sinless perfection after our regeneration? Or that we're capable of it? Or that it will happen? The answer is no, of course not. We go to 1 John. 1 John 1. You can keep a finger in Romans 6, because we'll be coming back to Romans. But 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we, we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And so we're we're faced with some really real difficulties, which I think you see Paul's angst over these difficulties in Romans 7 especially. We're not in bondage to sin anymore. Sin is no longer our master. I'm no longer obligated to answer when the chains of sin rattle. But I often do. And very often do. Even as regenerate people, we often find ourselves in circumstances where 
using our language that we've used to define free will, I desire this sin more than I desire to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is our experience. Which is why the confession goes on to say, yet, so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly, nor only will that which is good, but also will that which is evil. And I know if we hammer too much on Romans 6, there are many of us that are going to feel condemnation. That we hammer on, you are not in bondage to sin. Which means, man, I'm such a terrible, scum of the earth kind of person that I continue to sin. Well, sin is terrible. And there is a sense in which even as Christians, it's a harder thing to consider sin because we're not in bondage to it anymore. But the Bible doesn't lead us to despair. Consider the flow of thought in Romans. Romans 6, we are freed from bondage to sin and freed to serve Christ. Romans 7, I still sin though. What do I do with that? Going to verse 21. (coughs) Read this earlier. So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? And you can hear that cry. Paul just teaching on. We're free from the bondage of sin. And there are a lot of implications that ought to rise from that, but I still sin. And my members are still waging war against my my chief inner desire that the Spirit has put in there. I want to do good. And that's why Paul can speak in the way that he does in Romans 7. His fundamental orientation is, I want to serve Christ. I want to do good. But my members are waging war against me. And the text doesn't stop here and say, you're disgusting and terrible because you continue to sin. And... It's, it's amazing that Christ has kept you this long. It doesn't go there. It goes on to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is the flow of thought that we must have when we're understanding, yes, we are freed from bondage to sin. Yes, I continue to sin. Yes, it is terrible. And yes, I'm in anguish over this. Wretched man that I am. But the thoughts don't stop there. The thoughts continue into Romans 8, which we all know is one of the most encouraging, uplifting, beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. And this isn't accidental. Paul had this flow of thought that he was intending to arrive at through these thoughts that we've been looking at. So rather than feel condemned in that the Bible teaches us that we're not in bondage to sin, we should feel hope because that's where the Bible points us. And especially when you get to the end of Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? God is for me. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a natural pivot to the final paragraph in the confession. That as we are promised, our regenerate state, something God wrought in us, is permanent. And will mature to some degree in this life, but will be perfectly matured in the life to come. And we see in paragraph 5 of chapter 9, the will of man is made perfectly, immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. And there should be a yearning in us for this, especially if we consider what we were talking about in Romans 6 and Romans 7. That I am freed from the bondage of sin in this life, but there's a war going on and I lose a lot of battles. To which we can all cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am. And yet, this isn't our final state. Our final state that we look forward to and hope is that we are made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. This is better than the beginning. I think that's Richard Barcelos. Is that his title? Yeah. Better than the beginning. In the beginning, we were inclined to do good with no taint in our flesh, but it was mutable. It was changeable, and that was the problem. We can't even be trusted with that. And so in the final state, we'll be given the best that we can possibly have. And my will will be immutable. And I will perfectly desire the good alone. This is, of course, contrary to the perfectionists that have plagued God's people through church history. This is not possible in this life. This is not experienced in this life. This is experienced in the future state only. We can imagine, to a degree, the glory of this state. We will not only be freed from the bondage of sin, which we are now, but we'll be freed from the power that it exerts over us. We'll be freed from its presence, totally and completely. When we think of being freed from its power, we've looked at Romans 6, but we can look at 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Starting, We'll read the final part starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. His future resurrection is given as motivation for present activity, present life. You're going to inherit the imperishable. You're going to put on immortality. And death will lose all of its sting. Sin will lose all of its sting. We consider being saved from the presence of sin. Well, Psalm 37, we just looked at a couple weeks ago. Just reading the pertinent text in Psalm 37. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of his pastures. They vanish away like the smoke. They vanish away. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I saw him, he could not be found. There will be no sin or wickedness in the final state. Nothing to tempt us, nothing in us that would succumb to temptation. Perfect inclination to good that is immutable. And of course, in Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. That is the new city. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, there's a lot for us to consider with all of this. In the here and now, we must fight every inclination in us with a defeatist attitude towards our, our sins. That I, I'm just resigned to this sin, and there's nothing that can be done about it. Christ has freed us from bondage to sin. And it may take my whole life to find victory over it. But it's possible. And if God wills it, we will triumph over any sin that He wills us to triumph over. We do not have to answer yes. But we look forward to the final state in which this wretched man that we are, this wretched body that we have, this war with our members will finally cease and we'll have peace. Peace founded on righteousness and justice. Peace founded on Christ. If we have questions, I think we'll have to take them after, but we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us as we consider these things, things that are challenging, but things that are beautiful and wonderful. Lord, I, help us, I pray that you would help us to look forward and hope to that final state and that it would change our perspective on our trials here and now, that they are temporary and that victory is assured for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.